0: to week six of M-H-U. Today, we are going to continue in a sort of a similar theme that we were in last time we met. So if you were here last time, a couple weeks ago now, uh, when Patrick was teaching, you might remember that Patrick pointed out that, you know, somebody might think, yeah, sure, Jesus existed. And we can know some basic things about Jesus. But maybe we're not so sure that he taught all of the things that the Gospels say he taught, right? That's a kind of skeptical position that someone might find themselves in. And so we began to address that by looking at the historical evidence pertaining to what Jesus taught. And last week in particular, Patrick took us through a sampling of Jesus' parables to make some points about the historical evidence pertaining to whether Jesus actually taught those parables that are attributed to him in the synoptic gospels. Here's what we're going to do today. I am so excited about this. Today we are going to continue talking about what Jesus taught, but we're not going to be looking at parables. We're going to be looking at discourses which are those parts of the gospel where Jesus starts talking and then just keeps talking for a really long time. So I'm I'm hoping to look first at the Sermon on the Mount, and then a little bit at the Olivet Discourse, and then I want to jump over to the Gospel of John that hasn't gotten very much attention yet in our class, have a look at the Bread of Life Discourse, and then the Farewell Discourse. You ready for this? Let's look at the... um, What's this called? The Sermon on the Mount. That you will find in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7 spans those three chapters. There's also an abridged version of it in the Gospel of Luke, second half of Luke, chapter 6. And actually, it might be that Matthew's version is abridged too, um, just not as much as Luke's is. Uh, a number of scholars have observed that, like, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, straight through, beginning to end in Matthew, you'll notice a bunch of, like, abrupt transitions where Jesus seems to, like, change topic, like, without warning, and then you're like, what is going on here? Um, and some people have thought that the reason for that, in fact, a lot of people think the reason for that is that Matthew has actually taken a bunch of different things that Jesus taught on different occasions and just sort of grouped them together. Uh, and that this wasn't actually one big sermon that Jesus gave all at once. And that's possible. It, um, the argument is that in um, when an author was writing a Greco-Roman biography, the genre permitted that. Like it was part of the genre that you didn't have to write everything in chronological order. Um, one of the rules was that if you wanted to, you could rearrange things topically. And so some people think that Matthew has done that with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, that might be true. It might not be. I don't know. Other people have suggested that actually maybe the Sermon on the Mount is giving you like one big sermon that Jesus gave all at once, but that the choppiness, maybe that's due to the fact that it's only a summary of that sermon. It's like the bullet points. Um, and so it's been very sort of pared down. Uh, and that's another possibility that might be true. I don't know. Um, But the question that we are interested in tonight is not the question of, (laughs) uh, like, whether Jesus said all these things at once or or whatever, but um, it's just whether he said them at all. It's whether the things that Matthew puts in Jesus' mouth in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are things that Jesus really said, or if they're just being falsely attributed to him, right? That's the question that we are interested in for tonight. Okay. All right, I want to start out with um so what we've been calling in this class indirect confirmation by external sources. Um well, indirect confirmation and disconfirmation by external sources. You might remember, you know, the way we introduced this class is, is we're going to kind of comparing two views, which we've called the trustworthy view and the untrustworthy view. And we talked about how um, given what the trustworthy view claims, you would expect that the gospel writers will typically get details about the setting of Jesus' ministry right. Whereas given the claims made by the untrustworthy view, you might expect there to be more errors about the setting of Jesus' ministry. Um, and the value of being able to, ch- uh, of well, the value of that kind of evidence is that we can actually usually check those things. We can check, like, what sort of, you know, features did the setting of Jesus' ministry have much more easily than we can check events, like, did Jesus really do this or say that? And so it's kind of an indirect way of testing the events because it's like a way of testing whether these people really knew what they were talking about, had good sources, were being honest, so on, right? The gospel authors, that is. Okay, so one thing we can do about the Sermon on the Mount, as far as indirect evidence goes, is we can ask, do the teachings that Jesus um, sort of offers in this sermon fit his milieu? Are these teachings the kinds of teachings that you would expect to be coming from a first-century Palestinian Jewish rabbi, Or are they not? And that question, um, I mean, so that's one way we can test this view, right? Because if, as Matthew is claiming that Jesus actually said these things, you would expect that um, to be the case. You would expect that these things kind of sound like they're coming from Jesus or someone in Jesus' situations. Whereas that might or might not be true if somebody's just making it up. And in fact, especially on the untrustworthy view, if somebody sort of outside of that context is just making it up, you'd probably expect that they wouldn't always fit the context. So here's a cool fact. Turns out that all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, beginning to end, these teachings, at least most of them at any rate, we can confirm fit The context of Jesus' ministry. They seem like the kinds of things that, you know, Jewish rabbis in that time and place would have been talking about and concerned about. So one example of this is in chapter 5, starting at verse 17. It says, uh, Jesus is saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So one of the themes that we see in that little passage is the authority of the law. And according to Craig Keener, that fits um, the sort of Jewish Palestinian setting at that time. It makes sense. That's the kind of thing that Jewish rabbis would have been concerned with and talking about, the authority of the law. Uh, In fact, we see, you know, elsewhere in the Gospels when Jesus gets into disputes with religious leaders, right? You get cases where they use the law, the scriptures, as their, like, arguing weapon, right? They appeal to the authority of the scriptures. Similarly, in this passage, you see, um, notice that interesting little verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. The least of these commandments... That kind of makes it sound like not all the commandments have the same weight, that they're like not all equally important. And that too was an idea that was floating around first century Jewish Palestine. And so this fits Jesus' context. All right, so that's one example that Keener gives of the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount fitting a Jewish-Palestinian context. And there are many others. He goes on to say the following... He says, one, a quote, one could pile up countless other samples of Jesus' sayings fitting a Palestinian-Jewish environment. For example, Jesus teaching that lust constitutes adultery, his demand for integrity rather than oaths, the abuse of oaths in his environment, the kingdom prayer of Matthew 6 and Luke 11, the warning that it would be measured to one as one measures to others, removing the beam from one's eye before trying to remove the chip from another's, the confidence that the Heavenly Father would provide for his children no less than an earthly one would, admonishing another privately before public reproof, and possibly the allusion to a heavenly Sanhedrin or court in Matthew 5.22. So those are all things from the Sermon on the Mount that just by like, looking at other literature from the time, we can confirm those were prominent ideas, themes, things that people in Jesus' setting would have been thinking about, talking about, teaching about. So in other words, the whole Sermon on the Mount, I mean, maybe being slightly hyperbolic here, but looks exactly like the sort of thing that you would expect to be coming from someone like Jesus. And that counts for something for sure especially when we're just adding that on top of the fact that we've already got somebody explicitly claiming that Jesus said these things. Okay. So that's just sort of a general, like, you know, the teachings thematically fit their environment. But there are also some places in the Sermon on the Mount where it's possible that, and some people think, that Jesus is actually alluding to specific things in his immediate environment. Uh, And these, I think, are really cool. Here's my favorite one. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. This is a well-known saying. You'll probably recognize it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he goes on and continues to talk about like a lamp and, you know, light and stuff like that. But what I want to draw your attention to is... uh, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Here's a question. Why did Jesus choose to use that particular image? Excellent. Okay, so Elena just pointed out, if you go to, to Israel, there's hills everywhere, right? So it seems like, uh, you know, a natural image for Jesus to pick is like a city on a hill. Good, that's great. Um, I think there's an even more specific uh, piece uh, of inspiration that might be at work here um, but that's certainly on the right track or I mean that might that might even be right this is so here's another thought that's related to yours Craig Evans points out that um, just about six and a half miles I think it is from Nazareth is this Greek city called Sepphoris, and it stood on a hill and you could see that city sitting up on that hill from Nazareth so Jesus grew up with this city on a hill in the background of, like, his entire childhood. And so Craig Evans suggests that maybe that is what inspired this image that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. That's a possibility. A neat little explanatory connection that seems to speak in favor of, Jesus actually said this, and they didn't just say Jesus Okay, so that I think is kind of cool. Uh, what else here? Uh, oh, oh, th- this is also kind of cool. All right, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to jump around a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount, so sorry about that. But have a look at chapter 6. So Craig Evans has pointed out something else. Uh, in chapter 6, Evans says, like, the first half of this chapter is kind of about hypocrisy. Um, and prayer and things like that. And Craig Evans has pointed out that there are a lot of little like phrases and images in the first half of chapter six that um, might be alluding to a theater that was in the city of Sepphoris. We don't know for sure whether the theater was there during Jesus' day, but it might have been. And uh, Evans thinks that Jesus might be deliberately like alluding to it in this um, passage because over and over again, certain words and phrases that kind of seem to call it to mind and then they just sort of stack up. So, um, verse or chapter six, verse one, Jesus says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. The word translated seen there is the root word for theater. Um, Verse 2, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Trumpets were used in the theater. Hypocrites originally meant actors. Uh, Verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Evans thinks that might be alluding to certain, like, hand gestures that were used in the theater. Um, Verse 5 and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. Uh, the street corners thing might be an allusion to this fact, that in Seferis, there was this, there was this colonnaded street, and the actors would go out on the street and try to draw people into the theater. And so Evans thinks that there might be an allusion to that there with the street corners business. Jump all the way down to verse 16. Jesus says, when you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting, um, disfiguring their faces. Evan says another element that you know of things that were involved in like the theater. So um, it's possible then that Jesus is sort of drawing a bunch of imagery and terminology here from the theater in nearby Sepphoris. Okay. Um, And then one more example of this sort of a thing that I want to share with you. Chapter 5, verse 41. This is a passage where Jesus is talking about how you should respond to injustice with kindness. And one of the examples he uses at verse 41, I always, for a long time, I was like, this is very strange. Like, what is he talking about here? He says, if someone forces you to go one mile go with him two miles and i always uh, for a while i was like what is that about like i mean sure i kind of get the example but it seems like Mm -hmm. a strange example because when does that happen right like when does somebody just randomly like abduct you and force you to walk with them or something for a mile um but as it turns out and i don't remember where i first learned this but probably in a sermon actually um as it turns out uh in the Roman Empire, Roman soldiers sometimes would force, like, random people to carry things for them. And just, like, they would say, here, take this load and walk, you know, from here to here. And they'd force them to carry things. And we actually see this happening in the Gospels in one place. Because you might remember when the, uh, Rome, the soldiers are leading Jesus out to be crucified, they commandeer Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross when Jesus is unable to. To do that. Anyway, so it might be that Jesus is alluding to that in this passage. Okay, so, yes, got it. So, Austin has noted that he has heard it claimed in sermons. Uh, We don't know, we don't have a better source right now, but we have (laughs) claims from sermons that apparently there was like a legal limit on, like, you couldn't, a, a soldier could not force you to go farther than a mile. And so that would make the going the second mile extraordinarily supererogatory, I suppose. Uh, Okay, cool. That's super interesting. Um, Okay, Uh, so those are some things about just the way in which the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount really does seem to kind of pin it down right into the context where it's supposed to have come from, which speaks in favor of the trustworthy view, to some extent at least, right? None of these things are, like, decisive, of course. Um, Let me say some other things about the Sermon on the Mount, and then I want to hear if you have any questions about it uh, or or comments or whatever. Um, So jump to the beginning of chapter 5, very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It begins, the the actual sermon begins in verse 3 with the Beatitudes, which are those little proverbs of of the form, blessed are the so-and-so, for they shall such and such, right? So starting at verse 3, Jesus said, blessed uh, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, etc., etc. Okay, Um, I'm not going to read all of them. But uh, a couple of interesting things about these Beatitudes. It's worth noting, first of all, um, that the Beatitudes are one of the things Uh, that Luke repeats in his more condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you take Matthew's Beatitudes and Luke's Beatitudes and lay them side by side, you'll notice that they're not exactly the same. They're a little bit different from each other. Now, for some people, that's like an immediate alarm, like, oh, no. Uh, You know, they don't agree. This is like a contradiction or something, right? Matthew and Luke can't get their story straight. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second, but in this case, Craig Keener has pointed out that actually it looks like the differences between Matthew and Luke's Beatitudes reflect different ways of translating an original Aramaic statement into Greek, which actually turns out to be evidence in favor of the trustworthy view, because it suggests that Matthew and Luke are getting their Beatitudes from an earlier source, a a common source, right? A source they both had access to, and a source that was in Aramaic. And guess what? When Jesus was in Galilee, he was almost certainly teaching in Aramaic. So that actually looks like what you'd expect it to look like if the trustworthy view is true. Um, So that's kind of cool, I think. Uh, Another interesting fact about the Beatitudes, um, Giza Vermes has pointed out that they satisfy the criterion of coherence, which we didn't get to talk about in the first day of class. Uh, It's a type of evidence that we just didn't cover, but it has come up a couple of times. And the rough idea is just that sometimes certain themes or patterns seem to just pervade all of our sources about Jesus. And when they do, that's people think, oh, okay, then probably Jesus really did emphasize that theme or, or whatever right? Um, Because it's in all these sources, many of which are independent of each other and so on. Um, Some of them are earlier, some of them are later, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And then the thought is like, well, anytime you find an instance of that pattern or that theme, you're then in a position to say, well, um, that's a reason to think Jesus actually said that because it sounds like the sort of thing we know he would have said. See how that works? Okay. Okay. So the Beatitudes, uh, according to Giza Vermes, fit this criterion because the virtues that Jesus is extolling in the Beatitudes are virtues that we see Jesus endorsing and exemplifying and teaching about all throughout the Gospels. So it seems like the Beatitudes satisfy that criterion. They sound like the kind of thing Jesus would have said, roughly. Um, Similarly, uh, there's another, uh, well, not just one other perhaps, but one other that I'm going to mention at any rate. The Lord's Prayer starts in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 is where it begins. The Lord's Prayer is also packed with themes that are known to be characteristic of Jesus. Giza Vermes highlights them. He notes the following. Uh, themes or, or ideas that were like characteristically Jesus like he says uh, d- just from the prayer, uh, God as Father, the sanctity of his name, the appeal for the instant coming of his kingdom, the focus of prayer on immediate needs, the bread of today, the obligation to forgive in order to obtain forgiveness, and the hope in liberation from demonic powers. All of these form a perfect synopsis of the doctrinal and moral message of Jesus. That was Giza Vermes. Uh, so that's another case of something in the Sermon on the Mount satisfying the criterion of coherence. It just kind of sounds like Jesus. And that definitely counts for something. Now let's go back to that thought about like what happens when you compare Matthew and Luke on the Sermon on the Mount. One thing that you'll find is that Matthew tells you right away, beginning of chapter 5, that Jesus is on a mountainside when he gives this sermon. Luke puts him on a level place or a plain. What's the deal with that? Well, here are a couple of suggestions. Some people have said that uh, there are places in Galilee where the geography you know, allows that you could, like, have somebody standing in a certain place and it would be possible to describe it either as a mountainside or as, like, a level surface of some kind. Like, there would be, like, something like a, a flat, like, ledge or something, like a fairly large one on the side of a big hill or something like that. Um, as best as I can understand it. I'm not sure how, if I fully understand this claim, but some people have suggested there are places in Galilee That could be described as both a level place and a mountainside, somehow. And so maybe Jesus was in one of those places. I prefer the following explanation. It's been pointed out that uh, it would be very strange if Jesus only said the things that he says in the Sermon on the Mount once. That would be absolutely strange. Because he was constantly coming across new people right? And teaching new people. And so presumably he would repeat a lot of his teachings over and over and over again. And in fact, he might even have an entire sermon that he would give on multiple occasions, right? So um, it could just be that these were two different occasions on which he gave the same or a similar sermon. That's a possibility. Another salient uh, fact that comes to light when you compare Luke and Matthew's sermons on the Mount or the Sermon on the Mount with the Sermon on the Plain or whatever, is the following. Um, There are lots of verbal differences. We looked or we saw or at least mentioned already that there are verbal differences between the Beatitudes, right? Little differences in how they're worded. Similarly, same thing if you look at the Lord's Prayer, right? You'll find lots of little verbal differences between Luke and Matthew, And some people have have tried to make a big deal out of this and tried to say, look, they're making mistakes, they're not being careful, you know, something like that. Um, The authors of the Gospels, that is. I think that's absurd. Um, And probably at this point in the class, you guys already have a good idea about why that's Well, if absurd is too strong, at least wrong. Um, A very strange inference, right? Because, I mean, think about this. So there are so many reasons why there would be variations like this, why you would actually expect little verbal variations like this, even if there aren't any mistakes being made at all. Reason number one, translation. Translation. Right? So we talked about in the case of the Beatitudes, we're translating from Aramaic to Greek. There's always going to be more than one way to translate something said in Aramaic into Greek. And so you might just have two different translations of what Jesus said. And then you get some verbal differences. Paraphrase. Very unlikely, very unlikely that uh, the people writing the Gospels are quoting Jesus word for word. Usually they're paraphrasing. And there's always going to be more than one way to paraphrase something. So we could just have different paraphrases of the same original statement that Jesus made. That would also give you some verbal differences. And then there's the whole, Jesus might have given this sermon or similar sermons more than once, right? And probably he's not going to say it exactly the same way every time. That would also be strange, right? Right? Uh, I mean, think about it. If if your thought is like, well, as long as both of these um, authors are reporting the same teachings of Jesus, we should expect there to be no verbal differences between them. What kind of a world are you imagining? Like a world where everybody always chooses to translate something the same way as the next guy over here where everybody always paraphrases somebody exactly the same way as the next person over here, and where somebody who repeats their teaching says it exactly the same way every time, down to the very last word. That is just not the way the world works. Okay, I'm starting to sound like Tim McGrew, I think. He likes to complain about how biblical scholars don't seem to live in the same world that he does. Excellent. Okay, great point. So Fava just pointed out that Jesus presumably wasn't like reading from a scroll when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes he was, like when he's in the Capernaum synagogue, right? But now when he's doing the Sermon on the Mount, right, that's his own teaching in an outdoor place, right? He's not reading from a scroll. So especially in that case, you wouldn't expect him to say it the same way each time. Perfect. Great, great. So Ian has pointed out that um, there were not as many, like, syntactic and well, I guess, syntactic rules in ancient languages. So there were lots of different ways to say the same thing. And so that's going to make it much easier and much more likely for people to translate something differently, paraphrase it differently, et cetera. Yeah, so Austin just pointed out that in particular Greek, like you can put the words anywhere in the sentence, right? It doesn't matter what they're modifying and you know what they're doing. You know. Okay, so let me just repeat the question real quick. So Elena has asked whether... Like, was this a historically common thing that you might get throngs of people following around a rabbi for, like, a couple of days even? Um, I don't know. Uh, so maybe I could try to find out, but I have no idea. Does it, yeah, that's a good question. Maybe. Maybe that ha, maybe it happens in the Old Testament as well. And I, I do actually, now that I think about it, there are stories about... Um, uh, I think Josephus maybe has some of these, you know, about people who, like, rebels who wanted to rebel against Rome and would go out into the desert and kind of gather a following out there and then come marching in. and Yeah. But uh, official answer is I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. Okay. Um, shall we look at the Olivet Discourse? Okay, so Mark Chapter 13 is the Olivet Discourse. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Let me like briefly repeat that into the mic here. So it's been pointed out by Austin and seconded by Ian that um that in an agrarian society during certain seasons of the year, because of the way the farming worked and so on, there would have been times when people just had a lot of downtime, as you put it, and one of you put it that way. Uh and so maybe could have afforded to just wander around and follow some interesting rabbi who's making bread and loaves appear out of you know, nowhere, or whatever. Bread and loaves. <laughs> loaves of bread, whatever. All right, uh, Olivet Discourse. Okay, so this is an end times discourse, or at least it's partly an end times discourse. Raises lots of um, contentious theological issues that I'm going to actively avoid. Uh, the question that we are focused on tonight is not what Jesus meant by the things that he said in this discourse but the historical question of whether he actually said them. The discourse begins with a scene uh, in the temple, or as they're kind of leaving the temple. So Jesus is in in, uh, Jerusalem for Passover with his disciples. They're walking out of the temple. And um, a disciple makes some comment that inspires Jesus to make a prophecy. So let me read for you just the beginning of this discourse Uh, So Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 1. As he, he, that is Jesus, was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pain." Okay, I'll stop there for the time being. Um, I want to start just by saying a few things about the prophecy, the little prophecy at the very beginning of this discourse. The disciple, this unnamed disciple, as they're walking out of the temple, kind of exclaims about how marvelous the temple is, right? What does he say here? Uh, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And... um. This is a small thing, but nevertheless, that comment is absolutely spot on in terms of, like, historical plausibility. Because if you've never done this, look up images of the, like, drawings of the Jerusalem temple. It was enormous, and it was beautiful. Uh, And this is just a totally believable thing for, like, a disciple of Jesus who's maybe from Galilee. Who knows? Maybe never seen this temple before, right? And he's just followed Jesus to Jerusalem for Passover, and he's marveling at this awesome structure. Uh, So, I mean, it's a small thing, but it's, that. I mean, it has, like, uh, the ring of truth to it, as Tim McGrew might say. And then what does Jesus say in response to that little outburst? He says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So that is a kind of a little prophecy, right? He's prophesying the destruction of the temple. And that prophecy we know came true. The temple was destroyed in 70 CE, as Elena has pointed out. <laughs> I'm giving you credit. Uh, okay, yes, it was destroyed in 70 CE. And this has led some commentators to think, like, wait a minute, how did Jesus know that, right? Especially, you know, if you're coming from the point of view that's skeptical about supernatural, you know, abilities and entities and so on, you know, I I can see, you know, it's reasonable to doubt that Jesus really made that prophecy, right? And so some people have tried to say, no, 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 this was just made up later by the Christians and then attributed to Jesus to try to make him look good, to say, look, Jesus saw this coming, he predicted this whole thing, okay? Um, Here's a weird thing about that view. Actually, there's a couple of weird things about that. Maybe not Maybe weird is too strong. but um, So one thing is that I think that most people would place the Gospel of Mark earlier than 70 in terms of, like, when it was written, right? Most people say it was in the 60s as late as 70. And I think that, if I remember right, one of the reasons some people push it back as late as 70 is precisely to account for this temple business. Uh, but that's, at any rate, something that a person advocating this view is going to have to contend with, right? If you want to say this this... Uh, prophecy was made up after the temple was destroyed to make Jesus look good, then you're going to have to contend with, you know, the dating of Mark. Um, so that's one thing you've got to mess with. The other thing is a number of people have pointed out that it's actually not even that implausible, that even if Jesus didn't have supernatural insight or was not using supernatural insight, it's not necessarily implausible that he might have been able to predict this. And here's why. So um, a, number, a lot of people made this point, but a friend of mine that I talked to about this was particularly helpful. And, and so the way we were thinking about it was something like this. Like, look, there are a ton of, I think this is the way everybody thinks about it. This is, sorry. Um, so it, during that time, there were tensions between the Jews and Rome. Lots of tensions, right? The situation, I mean, the, the Romans did a pretty good job of trying to accommodate Jewish practices And sometimes vice versa, right? But there were tensions, undeniably. And sometimes those tensions would sort of burst into little bouts of violence. And it wouldn't take a genius living in that environment to realize this situation is not stable. This is just not going to last forever. At some point, the keg is going to blow. And there's going to be an all-out war. And what's going to happen when that happens? Who's going to win, the Jews or the military superpower? Well, probably the military superpower. And what are they going to do when the time comes that they're in direct conflict with the Jews and in a position of trying to like, claim or maintain their position of absolute authority? Probably they're going to target what was at least symbolically the center of Jewish power, which was the temple in Jerusalem. So anybody living in Jesus' situation who is paying a little bit of attention to the political situation, unlike me, um, would have probably, uh, well, sorry, and maybe not probably, but it's not, like, outrageous to think that they might have seen this coming, right? That at some point, this is going to happen. Okay. Um, so there's that. But there are also points that we can make, like, positively in favor of the fact that Jesus actually made this prediction. One is it's multiply attested. So we have it in the Olivet Discourse, but we also have Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple in um, the, what's called the Sayings Gospel Q, which was one of the other sources that Matthew and Luke used, aside from Mark, when they wrote their Gospels. And it was basically just a collection of Jesus' sayings, some of the things he said. And we think, at least I seem to recall, uh, I think the view is that basically the whole document is reproduced in Matthew and Luke. So it's not like we don't really know what it said. We know what it said. You just got to read Matthew and Luke. It's parts of them. Um, But it was independent of Mark, or at least that seems to be the standard view. So we've got two sources and Jesus making a prediction about the structure of the temple in each of those sources, and they're independent of each other. So that's, that counts in favor of the historicity of this prophecy. Also, it's been pointed out that the criterion of embarrassment might have application here, and here's why. Let's suppose that you are an early Christian, uh, and you want to make Jesus look good, and so you think, oh, I'm going to make him, I'm going to say that he made this prophecy, Because this whole temple that just got destroyed, I'm going to say that Jesus predicted that. And that'll make him look super awesome, right? It'll make him look like a true prophet of God because he predicted the future or something like that, right? Is this the prophecy you would make up? I mean, look at at what this says. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Two problems here. Problem number one, there are no details. So if you're making up a prophecy to try to make Jesus look good, you've got all the information about what happened with the temple. Wouldn't you, you know, wouldn't it further your goal at this point to like include details about like when the temple was destroyed, who destroyed it, why and how, right? But all you've got here is Jesus saying it's going to be destroyed. At least that's all that we have in the text. And similarly, Jesus says something um, that, if taken a certain way, could make the prophecy look like it's a false prophecy, right? He says, not one stone will be left on another. Now, probably that's rabbinic hyperbole. Uh, Rabbis would often overstate things for the purpose of effect, and we see this all the way through the Gospels. Jesus does this all the time. And that's probably what he's doing here. But it wouldn't be too hard to misinterpret him and take him literally as saying, like, yeah, not one stone will be left on another, literally. But if you took him that way, you would think that the prophecy was false because it isn't the case that when the temple was destroyed, not one stone was left on another, right? The Western Wall was left standing. So, uh, someone who's making up a prophecy to make Jesus look good might try to avoid a language that could be interpret, misinterpreted as like, oh, that would make it a false prophecy if you misinterpret it that way, right? Uh, so there are some reasons to think that if someone were making up this prophecy, it wouldn't look like this. It would look different than this. Okay. Have a look at verse 9 and following. Jesus is continuing to discourse. and He says, You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Does that sound to anyone like exactly what happens in the book of Acts? Sounds a lot like the sort of things that happen in the book of Acts. So some, uh, commentators have said, look, not just that passage, but in fact, throughout the discourse, you see all these themes that were sort of characteristic of a later time, the early church era, and that were not characteristic of Jesus' ministry. And that's a reason to think that maybe this discourse or parts of it were made up by people in that later environment. And, uh, than just falsely attributed to Jesus. That's an argument that people have often made. What should we say about that? Well, one thing we can say is the following. Um, Actually, I'm inclined to think that that does count as some evidence in favor of the untrustworthy view. But on the whole, I also think that that's false. I think Jesus did say these things. And one thing that we can say... Uh, about this is that, of course, the traditional view is that Jesus predicted and anticipated a lot of the things that went on in the early church era, right? In fact, the traditional view is that he founded the church and then after his resurrection sent it on a mission – a mission to the whole world. And so, um, if that's the case, then contrary to what some commentators have claimed, you might actually expect Jesus to be anticipating these themes of like evangelism, including evangelism to the Gentiles and there being a church and persecution of that movement. Because, I mean, surely that wouldn't be hard to predict. If Jesus knows that, okay, I'm going to send these people out making these claims in this environment. Of course he's going to be able to predict that there's going to be, like, severe kinds of persecution and so on. And that it would look maybe a lot like the passage we just read. Um, You know, because that, I mean, that's actually kind of generic, the sort of things that are described in that passage, uh, if you think about it. Um, Okay, so I think this is a complicated issue because it's, I'm not entirely sure how to weigh the evidence when one of the hypotheses is that Jesus, like, predicted the future, It's tough, but there's a lot of interesting stuff there, and I don't think that it's anything that we should be worried about. Okay, we got all kinds of people now. Great, excellent. So drawing on a point we made earlier, Elena has just pointed out that um, you can make an argument that if somebody had made this prophecy up after the fact, they might have gone into a lot more detail to make it look a lot more impressive because, you know, they know what happened, so they are able to do that. And the fact that it's kind of vague makes it sound more like what you'd expect from somebody who's just kind of generally anticipating that, yeah, I'm going to send out these people into this environment, and here are the kind of things that are probably going to happen when the... Okay, great, awesome. Have a look at verses 24 and following. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Okay, this passage, and not just this one, but various things throughout the uh, the Olivet Discourse, which, by the way, also appears in Matthew 24. um, I just want to point out these... Uh, a lot of the images and language and doctrine in the Olivet Discourse is echoed or alluded to by Paul in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And uh, this is especially valuable in the case of 1st, sorry, not Corinthians, Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. This is especially valuable in the case of 1st Thessalonians because some people, I mean, there's a whole debate about, like, did Paul really write 2nd Thessalonians? But everybody agrees that Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. And if you look at the second half of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the first half of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you will find Paul talking about the end times and the second coming of of Jesus. And um, he, he uses terms and images that reflect things that you see in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. And so here's what's really cool about that. First of all, 1 Thessalonians is a very early source, Um, right? Paul wrote that while the events of Acts were still taking place, right? So it's a very early source, and it's written by somebody who we know was not only in close contact with the people who were closest to Jesus, but was actually getting doctrine from them, Right. We know this because like in 1 Corinthians, for example, and uh, he, he will talk, I think a couple of times, he, t- he says things like, I'm passing on what I received, right? And we know from like, Galatians that he went to Jerusalem on more than one occasion to meet with the apostles there and one, one time specifically to check and make sure whether the gospel he was preaching lined up with the one they were preaching, right? So we know he was in communication with the closest followers of Jesus about doctrine in particular, Right? And so, what we have here is a very early source by somebody who has a direct line to Jesus, in a sense, and is getting teaching through that line, right? So, this is an excellent piece of confirmation that Jesus actually did teach the things that are attributed to him in the Olivet Discourse. Does that that kind of make sense? Okay, cool. Um, And then, um, let me just say one other thing about the Olivet Discourse. If you look near the end, verse 32 uh, and following, Jesus says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And he goes on about that for a bit, but he's talking there about the time of the second coming. You might remember this. Um, Criterion of embarrassment. You're making up a story about Jesus. You're a Christian. You want him to look good. You want the pagans to fall in love with him. Are you going to make up a story according to which Jesus is claiming, I don't know. That doesn't make Jesus look good, right? Like, uh, that's not the kind of thing that you would be likely to make up. Uh, So, anyway, some people have said the criterion of embarrassment kind of comes into play there. and gives us a reason to think that Jesus actually said that. Okay. Okay. um, So I want to try to do—we only—we don't have a lot of time left at this point, but I wanted to try to do— I have less about these two, so maybe we can get through both of them, the Bread of Life Discourse and the Farewell Discourse. Bread of Life Discourse, uh, this appears in Gospel of John, chapter 6, roughly the second half of the chapter. In fact, more specifically, starting at about verse 25. Um, At least that's one place to start. Uh, Okay, so this is uh, the day after Jesus performs the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and the crowds that he fed have sought him out and found him again. And here's what they say at the beginning of this discourse. They say, "When they found him, that is, when the crowds found Jesus on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here?" Jesus answered, "I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, with uh, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval." Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. And he goes on for like an eternity. Okay, Um, so I just want to make a quick point about that intro section. Notice what happens there. The crowd comes to him and they want him to perform another miracle like the one he did the day before. They want him to start pulling bread out of a hat. Well, you know what I mean, right? Not out of a hat. Whatever. Out of a basket, actually, right? Because they pass the baskets around and then they, oh. Okay. Uh, And it's because they want food. Their whole goal here is, Jesus, we want you to give us more food. And um, although that's a sentiment that I sympathize with deeply, uh, I think Jesus isn't Particularly happy about that, right? His reaction is, Look, your motives are not right, and so he doesn't perform a miracle. Instead, he teaches them and corrects them. And the point I just want to make is that this seems to satisfy the criterion of coherence because we also see similar things happening in the synoptics where people will come and demand a sign from Jesus and their motives are in some way off and Jesus doesn't give them the sign, or at least not in the way that they wanted, or something to that effect, right? Uh, So In other words, this just looks like Jesus, right? This is one of those patterns that spans our sources. And so whenever you see an instance of it, you can kind of say, okay, that counts in its favor because that looks like what the sort of thing Jesus habitually did. Jump down to verse 48. Here's where it gets weird. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. That's the second time he said it. So we're, you know, okay, uh, Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes from down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. All right, and this just goes on for a while, but you get the point. Eating Jesus. Um, So that's weird. Um... What on earth is that about? Well, here's a suggestion. So Lydia McGrew has argued that there is an undesigned coincidence here. Because here's what she says. She says, look, um, and of course, she isn't the first person who's noted this point, but she says, you know, some people think that the key to understanding what is going on in this passage is the Eucharist. It's the Last Supper where Jesus takes the Um, bread and the wine and attributes to them new symbolic meaning. It says, this is my body and this is my blood and eat this and drink this and remember to be, you know, you know how it goes, right? And some people thought that that is the key to understanding this weird stuff that's going on in the bread of life discourse. Um, And then like what Jesus might be getting at with this talk of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Uh, And so McGrew, Lydia McGrew, not Tim this time, Lydia, has um, argued that, uh, and also, and I don't remember the details about this and I don't want to get into it, she's also tried to make it like ecumenical so that like regardless of your views on the Eucharist, you can endorse this particular view, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, we're going to just assume the correct view. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, she's pointed out that, okay, look, that's a, that might be right. That seems like a plausible explanatory connection that the, the The uh, Eucharist, the institution of the Eucharist is the key to, like, unlocking what Jesus means in John 6. But here's the thing. The Eucharist isn't in the Gospel of John. The Last Supper, you get the Last Supper with the farewell discourse, but you don't get the scene where Jesus takes the bread and the wine and, and gives them that symbolic meaning. It's not there. So the connection spans different Gospels. It's in John And and the the one, sorry, the one detail is in John, and the other is in the synoptics. And, again, John may have been aware of the synoptics, but seems to have relied on independent sources, sources independent of the synoptics. So um, the explanatory connection appears to be unplanned or undesigned, right? Neat little undesigned coincidence. Okay. um, One more thing about the Bread of Life discourse. Uh, Look at the very, look at verse 66 near the end. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay, two things here. First, criterion of embarrassment. You're a Christian. You're making up a story about Jesus. You want him to look good. I know, let's make up a story where he says something so utterly bizarre that his own disciples abandon him. Perfect! You wouldn't make up that story. So Criterion of Embarrassment speaks in favor of the historicity of this event. Presumably the best reason, uh, other things being equal, that we can think of that they would have written this down is because they actually believed that it happened. And presumably they believed that it happened because they had appropriate evidence that it did. Right? Like, for example the eyewitnesses told them that it happened or something to that effect okay Um, another quick little point peter's response to this is just spot on peter right like compare it to um i don't remember which author it was but you could compare it to uh caesarea philippi where jesus asks uh who do you say that i am and peter you know is like you're the messiah or, or whatever he says but you know totally different scene right Different things, questions are asked, different answers are given, but that, I mean, you can see the similarity, right? Like, that's the same guy, right? He's behaving in the same sort of a way. It's the same guy. So, this is kind of a criterion of coherence case where we have independent sources depicting a character in the Gospels in the same way, but not in a way that it looks like, you know, they're just copying from each other. It just sort of naturally turned out that way. Okay. That makes sense? All right. Uh, and we have a few minutes to look at the farewell discourse. So that is later in the Gospel of John. It starts in chapter 13. Uh, and at that point Jesus begins talking, and he keeps talking all the way through chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16, and then also seventeen where he prays for the entire chapter. So um, it 's a very long discourse. And some people have thought that this discourse, and in fact John as a whole, is, is really not a very historically accurate gospel, particularly compared to the synoptics. A lot of people in the untrustworthy camp think that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are our best sources about Jesus historically, and that John is significantly worse. And part of the argument here is that John seems to depict Jesus totally differently than they do And if we already think they're pretty good and John isn't lining up with them, then that's a reason to think John's pretty bad, or at least not nearly as good, right, in terms of getting it right. So there's this worry that, look, John doesn't seem to be talking about the same guy. It's like he's just making up things and attributing them to Jesus that didn't really fit what Jesus uh, did. It's a failure of coherence, which is a kind of evidence for the untrustworthy view. But it's not actually so clear that that's true, though it's often claimed. Uh, Lydia McGrew has been going after this idea recently and sometimes goes on fun rants about it in blog form, which is nice. Um, But uh, so there was a book by Craig Blomberg from a couple years ago where he cites a recent Ph.D. dissertation that went through the Gospel of John and looked at the things that Jesus says and looked for verbal and conceptual parallels between things Jesus says in John, things Jesus says in the synoptics. And uh, so verbal parallels mean they're worded similarly. Jesus says something in John, and he says something that is worded very similarly or similarly enough to see the resemblance in the synoptics. Conceptual parallels is, well, maybe it's not worded very similarly, but it's the same idea that you can hear being reflected. And here's what this particular dissertation concluded. Just in chapter 14, which is a chunk of the farewell discourse, 36 verbal parallels between John and the synoptics. These include parallels regarding the themes of sending the Holy Spirit, future persecution, the efficacy of petitionary prayer, metaphors of bearing fruit, an ethic of love, and so on. And more generally, in all of John's gospel, out of two, uh, sorry, out of three hundred and twenty-two propositions, two hundred and ninety-two of them are paralleled either verbally or at least conceptually in the Synoptics. So what it looks like is something more like this: that John is talking about the same person, teaching the same things as the Synoptics do. Maybe like stylistically, he's got a different way of paraphrasing Jesus, right? But the teachings do seem to be at their core the same. Okay, Um, so that's a point that we can make about the sort of overall the farewell discourse. Here are two specific things that target little details. Chapter 13. You remember the scene where Jesus washes the disciples' feet? Have a look at John chapter 13. uh, Yeah, We'll start at verse 2. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Skipping down to verse 12, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. And then he goes on and talks about how he has served them and likewise they should serve others, right? Okay, here's a question. Lydia McGrew asks, why did Jesus perform that object lesson right then? Why was that the moment to wash the disciples' feet? And, you know, we don't have to have an answer to that, as Tim McGrew often says. Like, I mean, there are questions that, you know, okay, that's a question. Maybe we know the answer, maybe we don't. But guess what? Look at Luke chapter 22. Lydia thinks that when you compare Luke 22, his account of the Last Supper, to John 13, there's a really natural way in which these two stories kind of interlock with each other. There's an undesigned coincidence here. Uh, Luke 22, starting at verse 24. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It's not the one who's at, or is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Here's what Lydia McGrew says. She says, One really plausible way of fitting these two passages together, in fact, almost an irresistible way, right? Like it's just grabbing to be put together like this. It's like, here's how it might have gone, right? Just imagine. So the disciples and Jesus are sitting around the table, and the disciples start arguing about which of them is the greatest, right? All this arrogance and whatnot. So Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his outer robe, and then kneels before each one of them, one at a time, and washes their feet, and then gets up, sits back at his place at the table, tells them that they should serve others as he served them, and punctuates it with this statement, I am among you as the one who serves. Some undesigned coincidences are really cool. Some of them are really interesting. Lydia McGrew has pointed out, and I totally agree, this one is beautiful. This is beautiful. Um, And, of course, this wasn't planned, right? There's no way that you could look at these two passages and say, oh, Luke and John were colluding to try to make it fit together. It doesn't look like that at all, right? It looks like a total accident, which is what would happen, or the sort of thing that would happen. If you've just got two people telling the truth. Okay. Um, Can I do one more? John chapter 13. This is another one that I really like. Sorry, 14. We were just in 13. Very, very end of chapter 14, verse 31. Jesus has been talking for a while. And then he says at the very end of verse 31, in fact, it's not even the whole verse. He says, come now, let us leave. And then what happens? Verse 15, he keeps talking. And he keeps talking through all of chapter 15, and all of chapter 16, and all of chapter 17, and it's not until 18 that we find him crossing the brook of Cadron to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. What is up with that? Well, here's what I I think is going on. This wasn't my idea. I didn't figure this out. Other people did. Uh, But this is just awesome. So... Let's suppose that they actually did get up and leave the room at the end of 14 when it looks like they did. Jesus could easily keep teaching after that, right? Let's say they're walking down the streets of Jerusalem. and Maybe Jesus is still teaching, or maybe he pauses to teach or something like that. What's going to happen as they're walking? You know, they they leave the house. They're walking through the streets of Jerusalem. They're heading out towards the, um, sorry, towards the... uh, garden of gethsemane they might very well have passed the vineyards in jerusalem and you know how jesus always uses things in his environment as illustrations in his teaching well what on earth is he doing in chapter 15 right there at the beginning i am the true vine and my father is the gardener he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. etc. right? This big extended metaphor about a vine. Right as they might very well have been walking past the vineyards at Jerusalem. That is awesome. That is like the second best piece of evidence we've looked at tonight. I like the foot washing thing even better, but man. Okay, we're going to cut it off right there because we are... Well, actually, we're only two minutes over time. That's not too bad.